Hello everyone, welcome to the uh, Oxford Martin School. My name is Charles Godfrey, I'm the director here. Uh, and it's my huge pleasure to welcome our speaker this evening, uh, Dr. Rajiv Shah. Uh, Rajiv Raj is president of the Rockefeller Foundation, has a hugely illustrious uh, career, was chief scientist at the US uh, Department of Agriculture and was administrator, which is, uh, it sort of translates on boss of USAID for a, uh, uh, under the Obama presidency from 2009 to 2015. Um, Raj is talking this afternoon on ending energy poverty, reframing the poverty discourse. Raj. Good afternoon. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you, Charles, for that kind introduction. Uh, thank you also for the invitation to be here at the school. Uh, this is a very special institution, and I'm uh, thrilled so many people are present here today to have this conversation. I am excited to be at Oxford, having never been accepted here uh, in the past. Uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here now. And the Rockefeller Foundation has had a long and productive history of working with uh, many of you in this room, I believe, uh, from everything from our world in data to uh, efforts to support and learn more about planetary health. And I look forward to further discussions both uh, this evening and in the future on the topic at hand tonight. Uh, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation, I will just take a moment to introduce the concept, was started by John D. Rockefeller Sr and very much inspired by his commitment to science and technology and its capacity to change the world for the better, particularly for the world's least fortunate people. And you know, I keep trying to go back in time and think about what it must have been like in 1913 uh, in the United States before we had an income tax, in the United States before we had a federal government that had any sort of uh, financial or programmatic commitment to help those people who lived effectively in poverty uh, move themselves up. And in that setting, uh, John D. Rockefeller created an institution committed to bringing science to the uplift of uh, the American population and then later uh, all of humanity. And that took shape in a couple of forms that really persisted for many, many decades. Originally, it was the conversion of medicine from a field where people sold products on the backs of uh, pickup trucks in the United States to, to a science-based discipline where research, uh, the creation of knowledge, and then ultimately the application of that knowledge to the least fortunate communities could actually lift up millions. And uh, in fact, our institution was awarded its first Nobel Prize for the yellow fever vaccine and, and global efforts, which persist to this day to ensure that every child on the planet gets the full range of vaccines that humanity knows how to produce to help them survive and thrive. A hugely successful century-long enterprise. Uh, after World War II, they similarly uh, reconsidered what their faith in science might mean for the world's, uh, at that time, impoverished populations and committed themselves to an agricultural, an international agricultural research program 
that decades later yielded breakthroughs in dwarf wheat varieties and the like, and then the political engagement with leaders around the world to improve their use of agricultural technologies in places like Pakistan or India or Latin America. The result was a green revolution that helped perhaps 800 million, maybe a billion people move off the brink of hunger and starvation and have enough food to, uh, to aspire to have a brighter future. And so it's against that backdrop that a couple of years ago when I started at the Rockefeller Foundation, I said, well, what is the next frontier of science and technology that has the capacity, if applied, to the world's more vulnerable populations to transform their lives for the better and to do so at a meaningful and powerful scale? And, uh, you know, we would all note that uh, there are so many different scientific frontiers that could represent the answer to that question. Uh, but tonight, I'd like to actually focus this conversation on, on one, and that is the role of energy as an essential tool for helping people rise out of poverty, be upwardly mobile, and improve the condition and the quality of their life. And perhaps even more than that basic observation, the idea that there's something we can do about it right now, public sector and private sector, scientists and investors, technologists and entrepreneurs, politicians and consumers, working together to ensure that we end energy poverty in a 15 or 20 year time frame. And in doing so, we transform the face of poverty around the world. And so I'm gonna make a few claims this evening about what we believe might be possible at the Rockefeller Foundation. And I'm doing that in the spirit of this being Oxford, knowing that, those, that these claims are all probably a bit of an exaggeration and hoping uh, that those of you here will, will push us to improve our collective thinking and think through uh, where we can do better to ensure we craft a pathway forward where the application of science and knowledge can really be transformational for hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and so, so uh, with that in mind, uh, my first claim is that energy is more essential to rising out of poverty today than it has been ever before. And I think that if you look uh, around the world, and I've had the chance to visit uh, very low-income households in parts of rural India, in urban slums in Africa, in war-torn post-conflict areas uh, in Latin America. And in all of those areas, we see some common characteristics of human poverty. One is that uh, women provide most of the actual manual labor required to get through life. Sometimes we use the term women, but it is girls collecting firewood, often in the dark, often at extraordinary human risk to themselves and their personal safety, so their family can have heat or their family can have fuel for cooking. Uh, sometimes it is women working in agricultural fields, and I see in this room some uh, folks who've been on the frontiers of understanding smallholder agriculture and the power of that uh, area of productive life to transform poverty, but it is women who provide 80% of the labor on those farms, and often without the benefit of advanced uh, productivity-enhancing tools and technologies that require power to, to run, and they work in environments where they don't have access to that. 
So with those observations, and frankly, in the last decade, the transformation of access to connectivity through mobile technology has really been the tool that now is in the hands of every single person pretty much on the planet. Uh, and I know that's a controversial statement, but, uh, but compared to other things, it has a deeper and higher penetration of access and utilization amongst lower income populations around the world and also now requires power to keep those phones charged and to be connected. So I would argue today, uh, although I'd love to see a body of research substantiate this over time, that energy access is in fact more important than ever before at helping people rise out of poverty. Uh, these are photos of nighttime satellite imagery of five cities in Afghanistan in 2014. When I was leading uh, I'm sorry, this compares Afghanistan to other cities. Uh, and when I was leading USAID in, in that period of time, I kept visiting Afghanistan. It was our largest single program in the world. In fact, here we had a strong partnership with the DFID, the Department for International Development here, and Afghanistan was, was your largest commitment when it came to the expenditure of official development assistance. And the reality was, uh, when I would go often with my DFID counterparts to Kabul, uh, we would talk about our insights on health, our insights on education, our insights on agriculture, and had really institutions that represented decades of expertise in those disciplines. And what we heard back, whether we were speaking to NATO commanders and their subordinates in the field, uh, the Afghan National Security Forces and their leadership around the country, or local leaders from Kabul to Kandahar, was they first and foremost simply wanted someone to turn on the lights. And, you know, we always had this conversation. We'd say, yes, but we also know here's what the power of health interventions can do to reduce mortality rates and create a more sustainable population for development over time. But the urgency they felt was that you could not have peace and you could not have security if you didn't have light and if you didn't have the ability to connect people to electricity so they could go about leading a life that had some semblance of productivity and upward mobility. So you see here the difference looking at night at Kabul versus uh, other, uh, other parts of the world, including Atlanta, Madrid, Brasilia, and Luanda. And it is striking that without electricity, it's hard to imagine other things uh, being in demand from populations around the world. And this experience shaped my observations deeply that you know, global development should be driven by what people and leaders on the ground in the places we seek to have the most impact instinctively believe they need and they need with a sense of urgency uh, in addition to what we as experts and scientists may have to offer as insights uh, with respect to other things that are necessary to create a pathway for global development. Now, this is a, a chart that you probably know well. It's from our world in data and on the page on extreme poverty. And in many ways, this is the standard story that we have told in our community for, for many years. If you measure poverty based on a dollar and 90 cents a day in equivalent income, the world has in fact made great strides in reducing extreme poverty over the last several hundred years. 
and has made great strides in the last several decades and has made those strides pretty much everywhere around the world, including, uh, of course, in places like China that have been these massive engines for, for the reduction of poverty on a global basis, but also in Africa and Latin America and every, everywhere else as well. And uh, we have this basic income-based measurement of poverty that has helped us define the poverty line. Uh, of course, that concept of a poverty line was defined in Great Britain in the 1880s. And so it's appropriate to be here when we're discussing it. Uh, and the metrics and the measures have been refined over time. But even as of quite recently, the fundamental underlying measure has been tied to what it takes to consume 2,000 or 2,100 calories a day because the mindset has always been if you can sustain that level of consumption, food consumption, you, uh, are no, you know, you've crossed the line at which your debilitating subsistence poverty causes, uh, causes death and disability through malnutrition and hunger. And I just reflect on that as a measure relative to what I heard in Kabul and relative to what we see with uh, young girls in Eastern Congo that in fact get enough calories every day but are still toiling without access to energy and power and feel trapped or stuck in a cycle of poverty and violence and don't have the tools to grow beyond that. And so while this is an important example of success, I'd argue tonight that we greatly overstate our success at reducing poverty by using this particular poverty line measure and describing the incidence of poverty as quite low on a global basis. A better way would be using Oxford's very own multidimensional indices of, and poverty measures. And those of you in this room can explain this to me better than I can to you. I'm, uh, I know that. But the basic idea of taking various deprivations experienced by poor people in their daily lives and building that into a measure of poverty that is more nuanced and more appropriate than a simple uh, economic poverty line that's tied to a food basket or a consumption, a certain amount of calories consumed, feels very, very appealing and helps us start to identify where poverty is most acute uh, and where it exists. And so I applaud you for doing that work. And when I think further about that, I would simply ask you to put yourselves in the shoes of those who in fact live without electricity and imagine what your life would be like if you were one of the 840 million people who basically lacked any meaningful electricity access altogether, or even one of the 2 billion people who might have intermittent but ineffective and non-productive access to energy and power. You're using dirty fuels for cooking and spending a lot of time, effort, and energy securing those fuels. You may have a small kerosene lamp to create light, but that is both unsafe, expensive, and ineffective as an at-scale solution. And perhaps most notably, your communities are not benefiting from the labor productivity improvements that come with access to productive energy and power. Put in more obvious terms, 
it's much more reasonable to start a business, create jobs, and be effective at that in a place like Iowa, where you can plug in at 10 cents a kilowatt hour and know the power is going to be there, than in a place like rural Malawi, where you'll end up requiring a generator, securing fuel, managing the security of that operation. And after you've made all of the intensive capital investments to run your own power, you still spend 40, 50, 60, up to 80 cents a kilowatt hour on diesel and the labor costs required to maintain that system. So, you know, we ask ourselves, why do these economies feel stuck in low growth and low productivity settings? Uh, one of the answers has to be that huge differential in access to power and electricity. And at the end of the day, that's what energy poverty means. And it's what it means to us at the Rockefeller Foundation. I lament the fact, having been someone who played a modest role in helping to shape the global goals or the sustainable development goals, that we haven't set uh, the bar high enough in the definition or achievement of energy poverty. And that is the next second statement I'd like to put out there, that we have to be much more ambitious in our goals related to achieving the end of energy poverty, and frankly, in the investment we make to measure whether or not we are succeeding. Uh, the current measure, as you probably know, is, uh, is that 650 million people fall under the uh, SDG target of 100 kilowatt hours of consumption a year. I'm told that, the, and I said, well, what does that mean? Because I'm not, you know, that could be a lot. It sounds kind of like a lot sometimes to me. And they said, no, no, that's enough to basically power a traditional light bulb for five hours a day on average through the course of a year. And that is clearly not sufficient if our vision is to provide people with energy access such that they can move themselves out of poverty. So uh, we would make the case that that number needs to be reconsidered and raised considerably. And if we did, the 650 million, as, as I point out, would likely go to 2 billion or north of 2 billion in terms of how we think about the task at hand. To further make the point, I'd like to just show you this animated bubble chart that illustrates that really no rich country is energy poor or can be energy poor around the world. And you can see in this chart uh, that countries as they move across time, Hans Rosling used to do these with health charts and I just, I watch them for fun because they're so exciting to me. But you can see as time goes along, you have countries going from low energy, low income to higher energy, higher income. And what I find so interesting about it is when you watch the bubbles move across the slide, no one goes uh, down right and then up. You, you can't get wealthier without access to electricity and energy to power that upward mobility. That's true as a nation, it's true as a household. And the fact that you, there are no outliers. You know, sometimes in health we'll talk about, well, let's look at really low income countries and it, that have these, uh, this unique attribute of having better population health, that doesn't exist in energy and power. There's no such thing as a country that achieves wealth and development without access to electricity and power. And I think we should take that into account as we think about how we want to accelerate progress at ending poverty around the world. 
the inequality of consumption, I find also quite stark. And if nothing else illustrates that contrast, consider this. The country of Kenya, as a nation, consumes slightly less electricity than all the pools, televisions, and jacuzzis in the American state of California. And that's despite the fact that Kenya's population is 25% larger than California's. And I just, that is such an extraordinary inequality uh, that it is almost hard. I actually went back over and over and say, is that really true? It is hard for me to actually believe it, but it is in fact true. And having worked on power and energy in Kenya, I can tell you the average price is probably well north of 25 cents a kilowatt hour, and it stifles the creation of businesses and jobs. It motivates people to live in an informal versus formal economy. Uh, and in the greatest fallacy, uh, every time I've been working on Kenyan power access, which we did previously through a program called Power Africa when I was in the Obama administration, we were always told, well, Kenya has enough power to meet its demand. And I kept thinking, well, how can that be true? Because I visit rural communities that have effectively no electricity. I visit urban communities where business leaders tell me they have their own diesel generators for everything, for backup. I was in my hotel and the power went off four times and clearly diesel backup uh, kept the air conditioning going after a stop period. And the answer is the power is so unreliable and it's so costly. It's such a bad, expensive product that people don't want to pay for it. Right? And so they say, well, Kenya has enough power in its current form to meet its demand. But if it were reliable, if it were low cost, if it were ubiquitous, the demand would be much, much, much higher. Uh, and, and that is really where we need to get to as a global community. Now, we've had an effort at Rockefeller uh, in India to, and Africa uh, that we call smart power. And it has been an effort to bring rural communities, power and electricity through mini grids, which are solar installations uh, that I'll show you in a moment. But this gentleman, Siaram, is a carpenter and a customer of one of the mini grids we support in Bihar, India. And since getting access to power via this option, which he pays for, he has doubled his productivity, hired two more workers in his, uh, in his uh, place of employment, increased his revenues and profits 20%, all thanks to an electric lathe that drills, grinds, and shapes wood uh, because he is a carpenter. And, you know, it's so simple as to be obvious, but frankly, having been and seen how our overall global development effort works, I'd argue we dramatically underinvest in getting this type of small business owner the power and electricity required to create the engine of employment, growth, and upward economic mobility. This machine consumes two and a half kilowatts per hour, over 60 times more power than the average light bulb, and I think more or less single-handedly makes the case that the United Nations definition of 100 kilowatt hours per year is grossly outdated and way too low. Now, whether that number should be 4,000 or 5,000 or 6,000 kilowatt hours per year is something we could all debate, but it's most likely in that range as opposed to 100. The way we were able to provide CRM with power is the, is the kind of third statement I'd like to propose 
knowing that this one in particular is probably the most aggressive relative to facts and data to support it. But I'm curious as to whether we could say that given the state of technology, knowledge, and understanding of climate, that decentralized renewable energy is the single best opportunity we have to end energy poverty as we know it. Uh, and look, for more than a century and a half, we've all had the mindset that achieving energy access requires building large power plants, connecting them to centralized grids, extending those grids and the services they provide via quasi-public utilities to every single household, every single business, every single enterprise. And the reality is that model has worked in some places, uh, but in large, large parts of the world, it simply does not work. Utilities look at poor customers, whether they are in urban slums or rural communities, either as people who steal power and electricity, or if they're forced to provide them power as loss leaders th that they have to serve to meet some regulatory requirement. And today, 150 years after we kind of invented this strategy, we think you can look at the technology frontier and do much, much better than that. Uh, one example of doing better than that is this micro power or mini grid station that is part of our Smart Power India program in rural North India. And these installations, which are primarily solar with a little bit of diesel backup and a battery for uh, smoothing out consumption and supply, are getting better every day. They're getting cheaper every day. Uh, and they can provide as little as 10 to 15 kilowatts of energy and as much as one megawatt, depending on size and scale. In this particular setting, you'll note that the 36 kilowatt solar uh, power generation sits next to telecom towers. And those telecom towers can be initial anchor customers for this kind of a micro business or mini business. Uh, but then they can go out and wire homes and businesses throughout that area. Uh, according to, uh, we, we know what drives the cost of these structures. In our India program in particular, we're able to get power to customers for 25 to 28 cents a, cents a kilowatt hour. That scene is very expensive, you know, and I have yet to meet a public official who doesn't start by saying they can produce coal-fired energy at four cents a kilowatt hour in India, and so they see that cost differential. But by the time you factor in transmission and distribution, collections, and availability, the truth is we don't think this is a costlier solution anymore than traditional power on the traditional grid. And we also believe the cost of these systems will come down dramatically. Later this year in November, I'll be announcing a major partnership with an energy company in India to reach 25 million rural Indians with a joint venture business to uh, extend the reach of these types of systems to 10,000 uh, local communities. And I'm particularly excited about that because we've already seen the scale of ambition has brought the cost structure of these systems down by 40%. And we've now honed in on a few areas of technology, importantly, the battery itself that is uh, part of the system that can help us uh, reduce the cost even further. According to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the price of solar photovoltaic modules 
has fallen globally by 99% in the last four decades and will continue to get cheaper and better. And frankly, we'd love to tether our strategies and investments to technology curves that have that kind of movement over time because we can imagine that that only gets better as the world becomes more proficient at manufacturing and creating these types of solutions. Uh, the program in India currently reaches about 200,000 people, and we've seen one other important outcome of this effort. Uh, we've seen that 97% of the bills sent out are paid by the poorest customers uh, that are on the other end of these projects and these businesses and these enterprises. And that's critically important because it changes the mindset uh, that started with saying these customers are in fact loss leaders and now sees these customers as entrepreneurs or people who are willing to pay for reliable, dependable energy, even if it is a little more costly than what everyone in this room pays in order to give their children the chance to read at night or in order to give themselves a chance to be more productive in their day-to-day -day lives. And I'm very encouraged that as the cost curves get better and better, this solution will be an extremely powerful one for rural communities and urban communities in India and all around the world. It leads to the question of, is energy access an affordable effort? Uh, in Liberia, the electricity price on average is 49 cents a kilowatt hour, and the product itself is not a particularly good one. It's highly unreliable. In the United States, it's 10.8 cents per kilowatt hour, and I apologize not knowing what it is sitting right here at Oxford today. Uh, but I, I just underlying the reality of uh, poverty and inequality, I believe, is this fundamental uh, lack of access to affordable and reliable power and energy that can make a tremendous difference. And when you fact focus on the price alone, it's easy to forget that time and again we've seen that people are in fact willing to pay higher prices for basic goods, especially lower income people. Uh, C.K. Prahalad, a, a well-known economist, wrote, I think, a very powerful book 15 years ago probably called Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid and introduced the idea that a low-income family in a slum in Nairobi would be more likely to spend three or four times what a middle-income family might spend to have clean water. And that that is okay because for them, the consequence of a child falling sick from having... Uh, you know, catching a disease, waterborne illness is probably much, much, much more consequential than for that other family. And similarly, for the access to power and electricity, I think we will start to see the same basic observation over time. One of the challenges when working on energy poverty and electricity as a driver of the end of poverty is the debate that comes between expanding existing grids and creating off-grid solutions like the one I just showed you. And as we've seen, in my view, throughout so many different areas of global development cooperation, uh, we believe that debate is largely overstated. There's no reason why you couldn't build out infrastructure, investing in the kinds of mini-grids I just showed you, and then at some point in the future, if done appropriately, simply connect all of that distribution capacity to 
what we today call the main grid. To me, it is a far more dangerous and far more uh, lackadaisical proposition to suggest that we should simply wait for utilities around the world to turn themselves around, get interested in serving low-income customers, build out access to those customers, and somehow uh, magically transform both their culture, the culture of those enterprises and the reality of life for the world's poorest families. And it reminds me of a discussion and debate uh, I used to have with uh, Dr. Muhammad Yunus, who, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for creating uh, the Grameen Bank. And he used to tell me that he went out, he was in Bangladesh, he'd go into rural communities and he'd sit in a circle with a group of women in a poor rural community in Bangladesh. And these women would have children that were hungry. They themselves would uh, eat maybe one meal a day. They spent most of their time working on their farms or with their uh, buffalo. And the one thing he observed, just sitting in that circle and hearing their stories, was how incredibly strong their basic work ethic was. He said, these are the most honest people I've ever met. They're the most helpful people to their neighbors. That, that he'd ever met, and they're the hardest working people he ever met. So he went back uh, into Dhaka, went into the bank, and said, I, you know, uh, we, we should be lending in small amounts to these customers, and I trust they will pay you back because I just sat with them, and let me tell you how hard they work and how trustworthy they are, and if one of them can't afford, uh, doesn't have milk for their child, the one who does will, will share it with them to ensure that child gets by, and I've never seen anything like it, and you should lend to them. And of course, uh, the bank said, well, that's not how we do things. Thanks for your input. We need collateral, and we do credit assessments, and they're all not credit worthy. Uh, so we'll serve them, but, but, you know, decades from now. And he went back and said, that's not a sufficient answer. So he personally guaranteed the first self-help groups personally created a banking institution for those poorest families. And several decades later, and probably hundreds of millions of uh, women served later, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for that courageous observation and committing his life to that task. And when I look today uh, at the discussion that happens amongst big power companies and big CEOs of utilities and heads of state, it feels a whole lot like that discussion of, with the bankers 40 years ago. And I believe there's room for perhaps many Muhammad Yunuses of the world to come together and actually solve this problem long before they change uh, the institutions that we think of today as primarily responsible for providing power to their populations. And that brings me to my fourth sort of statement here that I want you to test and see if you believe in. But simply knowing who will pay and what they will pay for reliable power is absolutely critical to solving this challenge. And this is where data, technology, predictive analytics, and the scientific tools of just the last few years, I believe, can be transformational. Because it's easy to say, uh, that, you know, in our uh, 200,000 people that we serve in India through a couple hundred of these mini-grids, we're seeing people repay at 97%. It's a lot harder to have a conversation with an entrepreneur or an investor and expect them to believe that that high repayment rate 
is going to be generalized some other community in rural Africa or a post-conflict area in Latin America. And the reality is uh, everybody asks the basic question, if you build it, will they consume? And we believe that the answer to that is they will. Rural customers in Kenya reach peak energy consumption uh, after, nearly a year after the connection actually comes to their home. And you could say, well, why is that? Why does it take so long and what's happening there? Uh, my guess is what's happening there is what's happened everywhere else in the world. When we started providing power and electricity in the rural part of the United States of America, uh, the consumption was actually quite low initially. And then companies like uh, in the US General Electric decided that if they built refrigerators and sold them really cheap or even gave them away to these families, that they would have a device in their home that was always consuming power and they'd sell more power. So they became an appliance company and they started uh, offering these life improving solutions to households that had never before had indoor refrigeration or cooling or all of the other uh, improvements in quality of life that come with electricity consuming appliances. That then built up demand and that created the upward slope of consumption, payment and demand that sustained all of these industries. I suspect you will see the same pathway take place if we try in many parts of the developing world, but in a highly unique and technology enabled manner. This is a photograph from one of our, uh, the businesses we support in Kamlapur, India. It's one of hundreds of new micro enterprises that Smart Power India has been serving. The woman you see at the bottom of the photo's name is Rajni, and she works in this business that obviously consumes power and electricity. Uh, but what we also know she did is she got the electricity connection at her home, and she bought herself a sewing machine for use at home. So when she's not in this garment factory working, she's at home working as an entrepreneur to supplement her income now with the benefit of labor enhancement and a potential to imagine a brighter future for her and her family. Those are the kinds of stories that you can unlock with a genuine effort to end energy poverty. In the field, they call this inorganic demand. And I keep arguing that we should use language that's you know, a little more accessible. This to me is just a woman who has, wants her kids to have uh, a little bit better of a chance at having a future and is willing to work at home uh, in a somewhat surprising setting to put in the extra labor to earn the extra income to make that future possible. But you can imagine as we expand these efforts around the world that in addition to sewing machines, you'll have electric mobility, you'll have uh, all kinds of you know, irrigation pumps and other agricultural processing technologies. Uh, but the, the link between technology improvements in improving labor productivity amongst lower income households and access to electricity is a symbiotic relationship. I thought I'd, uh, I'd effectively close with a reminder about Dr. Yunus's story because much like the Grameen Bank transformed our view of some of the world's poorest women and helped many of us see them not 
as people who were suffering from a lack of knowledge or a lack of effort uh, or even a lack of infrastructure, we have decades later recognized that they in fact are the engines of improvement for human development indicators in country after country after country. And it was their access to lending and their capacity to buy a buffalo or to uh, have milk processing or to improve the quality of the roof on their home and protect their family that created that upward mobility. In the same way, we really do believe that our customers in smart power have illustrated that they too are uh, dependable, reliable, hardworking, and if given the tools to move themselves out of poverty, certainly can. The final statement uh, that I'd like to posit is that fighting poverty can help the planet as well. And this is perhaps the toughest one for me because I spent a lot of time in 2014 and 2015 helping to set up both the, uh, the global climate agreements and the global development agreements. And if there's one observation I could make is those two communities always felt at odds. That in setting up our targets for the Paris Agreement, we were asking uh, industrial nations and less developed countries to adopt huge transformations in their economies or their economic development pathways to reduce carbon emissions to keep us under the one and a half degree target. And the fundamental debate was always, in my judgment, relatively lower income aspiring economies simply observing that much of the rest of the world that we called industrialized had in fact achieved the standard of living they've achieved, we've achieved, by consuming a tremendous amount of cheap hydrocarbon-based energy. And we were asking the two, three, four billion people in the world who do not have the same living standard that the other half of the world has to change their aspirations to make their path forward more complicated, to delay their desire for the kind of upward mobility everyone can see on a screen in order to contribute to this global goal of addressing the climate challenge we face. And that is a tough pill to swallow. It is a tough argument to make. And frankly, uh, whether you're a powerful emerging market like China or a far less powerful one, uh, that's smaller somewhere else in the world, it's not a deal that folks are going to take without, you know, in, without a better solution. We think distributed, decentralized, renewable energy can be that better solution. And in fact, if, you, if we collectively invest in these types of solutions, if we bring the technology cost curve down, if we use the amount of capital we've tried to aggregate for climate finance and for the transitions, that economies need to make to enable real renewable access, uh, renewable power-based access for hundreds of millions of people. We can actually accelerate, not slow down, the pathway out of poverty for two billion people on the planet. And we can do so while fundamentally changing the carbon equation that allows us to imagine a world that is still here <laughs> many decades from now. That was my little reference to traffic problems I had in London this morning. Uh, but, uh, but with that said, I, I thank you for, uh, for uh, this conversation and the chance to be with you. 
and really do look forward to your feedback and your thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that superb talk. Um, I'm going to ask for question now, questions now. Can I remind you that we are broadcast live, and when you ask a question, could you wait for a microphone to uh, turn up? Otherwise, people can't hear you. So let me ask for questions. Um, a lady there with the pink scarf. Hi, good afternoon. It was a very interesting presentation, and I come from India. Uh, our integrated energy policy, I think a few years ago, has already said that there are 80,000 villages in India where the grid won't ever reach. So DRE is the only solution over there, and our Ministry of Renewable Energy is doing a commendable job. What I wanted to ask you was that, is there a long-term commitment by Rockefeller Foundation to continue to work in India and uh, give access to electricity to all those people living in those 80,000 villages, far-flung villages? Thank you. Well, well, thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd also say that uh, my observations of the history of both the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, effective global development efforts are grounded in long-term partnerships. And whether it's bringing science to agriculture or, uh, you know, uh, public health expertise to vaccinations, the challenge of making these solutions accessible broadly is, is probably not a short-term challenge, and, and so we'll have a long-term commitment. What, one other thing I would say about that 80,000 number. Uh, at the same time as that number was introduced, uh, the Indian government during the political campaign also made the claim that every village had already been connected by power and electricity. And I said, well, how can these two things exist side by side? And the answer, as best I could tell, was the definition of what it means to be connected, that if you run a line into a community, you can say that community is connected. Whether that line produces consumable power for anybody and has helped one girl read at night or avoid the danger of searching for firewood in the dark uh, is not something that gets measured or assessed, which is why we advocate now. Uh, we don't, well, I don't know what the number is. I think we ought to have a per person kind of consumption of power number that helps us see who is living in energy poverty, who is not, and is open and transparent about what's really happening in different parts of the world. Hi, thank you. Great talk. Um, my name is Joaquin. I'm from Costa Rica, and I've been working or worked for several years on, on small biogas systems for homes. Uh, my question is, so you, you've mentioned about you know, uh, the firewood, you know, girls having to go get firewood at night, um, but most of the projects you've mentioned are solar-based. I'm assuming that these are not powering cooking or heating. So what are you guys doing for that part of that? We have been, so first I appreciate that, and I do think an appropriate assessment of energy poverty should include heating, fuel, cooking, the broad range of applications for which modern energy is transformational. And uh, we've been toying with an idea that you, some of you might be able to contribute to, but how would you create an index that aggregates these different pillars of energy consumption and, and allows one to, to really understand as a community achieving uh, the right level of energy access and energy consumption. We have supported a number of clean cook stove efforts from 
disaster relief to the larger alliance uh, to come together and do that. We've observed with great interest the Aadhaar uh, program in India, which has actually helped provide uh, a, a much more effective subsidy to transition people to uh, canisters and, and fuel-based cooking in that context, clean cooking. Uh, but, you know, we don't have all the answers, and we're going to keep thinking about how to be helpful in that context. Uh, good evening. Fantastic. I really like this the first time. I have, I'm, I'm listening to something which is focused on women, not only as consumers, but also energy in the hands of women could be really a transformative tool. My question to you was, when you are announcing big programs for India, do you think women playing a major role as contributors and not only consumers, uh, like you are just mentioning? So your November plan should have some women as entrepreneurs who are dealing with energy so that we take them from micro to macro. Thank you. Thank you. That's excellent advice that I think we should continue to heed. Um, I'll note that we have this uh, basic platform project in Myanmar and in a number of African countries. And frankly, we just had a team return from Puerto Rico in the United States where a very similar concept is desperately needed. Um, and in many of those settings, the people we've invested in uh, as entrepreneurs have been women-led. Uh, these are smaller entrepreneurial businesses, but women-led businesses. Hello, hi. Uh, I'm Anirudh. I'm a business school student, and thanks for the great presentation. I want you to understand uh, how do you justify decentralization when you say that, uh, like, when the cost of capital would be definitely higher for smaller uh, ticket uh, loans given out, and then you say uh, it takes about 10 months for someone to really maximize on the new power that they generated. Like, how does a economics play and how does decentralization make sense with increased work? Yeah. Uh, well, first, thank you. And I will say I'm just a special thank you. I think it is so important to have business school partners in this effort. So it, it really is. And these things only work if they work, uh, if they genuinely are interdisciplinary uh, initiatives. So two things. First is, if you look at any other country, uh, if you look at countries that have successfully connected everybody, to productive power. There isn't a single example where there hasn't been a hefty subsidy involved in aiding and abetting that connection. So the idea that we should take the world's poorest two billion people and do this without any public investment is, I think, a problem. And, uh, and I would advocate strongly, as we have in everywhere we work, that not only is this an appropriate place for public subsidy and investment, it is a critical and necessary part of the path to getting there. Uh, second, I would say, even with that, uh, we need to better understand these economics. So how do you get 10 months to be three months? Perhaps it's bundling appliances or agricultural processing tools and capabilities alongside the energy. And our, our uh, more entrepreneurial partners that are doing this in East Africa, for example, are testing exactly those kinds of bundle strategies so that you're both giving someone the capacity to improve their labor productivity via power and, and the capacity to be a high demand customer. Uh, one of the things I didn't talk as much about that I'm really excited about is, this, is the ability to use geospatial data and predictive analytics to identify which household in a village 
is likely to be a steep uh, demand curve for power use and which one is not. And it turns out that you can do that. Uh, and so our partners at the University of Amherst and the Colorado School of Mines in the US, but with partners uh, around the world are testing different algorithms that would help you see, okay, if you live in this village, not everyone in this village is gonna be entrepreneurial and uh, on the steep part of the demand curve, who's likely to be? And what does that mean for who you market to and who you sell to? So making that kind of latent demand more transparent to investors and entrepreneurs is a big part of our strategy. Hi, uh, I'm David Newman. And any, all your figures on energy, do any of them include non-commercial energy? I was in Nairobi two years after the energy conference there, and a lot of people were surprised to find that 95% of people in the world, their main energy source was wood, dung, or straw. And that led to a lot of work on things like energy-efficient stoves and that actually solve that problem in places like Kenya. Actually, anyway, it was designed by African women and not European men, things like the <laughs> Kenya Ceramic Chico. Now, have you gotten up... So, it, it, the, combined with this thing about non-commercial energy, can you see a way to deal with energy poverty, including both commercial and non-commercial things? That's an excellent question, and I... Honestly, we have to say I don't know the answer to it. So uh, that said, I, I think we, we are, with uh, MIT and others, working on ways to create an index that would help us understand what a multifaceted definition of energy poverty is and how you would track community performance against that multifaceted uh, definition. So by multifaceted, I'm including what you're calling uh, informal sources, I guess, of energy. Uh, what I don't know and what I'd encourage those of you in the research community to help answer is uh, what are the right long-term solutions? Like, it, you know, it, it, most, uh, I think, the bulk of standard thinking is that low-cost, renewable and reliable electricity is the baseline for, uh, for where power systems need to go in the future whether you're in an industrialized country or not, frankly. And, uh, but you know, what, defining what success looks like 10 years, 20 years from now is an important part of this project. And I, I don't think we've done that fully yet. Hi, thank you so much for that presentation. My name is Alexis McGivern. I'm a master's student um, doing a joint degree between environmental science and business. So trying to marry these two worlds. Um, I had a question about how the Rockefeller Foundation deals with areas where the regulatory environment might not be set up for a transition to renewable energy. I'm thinking particularly areas where the fossil fuel subsidies or the fossil fuel lobbies are very strong and they might not want subsidies going towards renewable energy. How do you manage that transition on a policy level? Uh, well, first, thank you. And I, I love the uh, choice you've made to, to go after both of those degrees together. So congratulations. I, I do think that's part of the, uh, the dialogue. That's part of the project. Part of the effort is being a strong advocate for transitions away from fossil fuel subsidies to subsidized, uh, the subsidized build-out of access based on renewable and 
probably local decentralized solutions for a few billion people on the planet. And that is a major transition as you're speaking to. So yeah, the politics are gonna be hard. I mean, the good news is you don't actually need in the short term a complete transformation of existing fossil fuel subsidies in order to start connecting people and watch them transform their lives for the better. Uh, but in order to have a fair mix of the right kinds of power in an appropriate way, that is something you have to deal with on the path to success. Hey, can I say one more thing about that? Because I spent a lot, I've spent a lot of time, and I still do, uh, trying to convince uh, country leaders to do certain things and not do other things. And I, I am just struck by the mindset that says, you know, it's okay to provide hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars in subsidies for fossil fuels to uh, relatively inefficient industrial businesses, and then all of the. Um, corruption or rent-seeking behavior that creates, while simultaneously arguing against subsidies for connecting the poor, and then wondering why they're still poor. I mean, you know, uh, trust me, if we didn't wake up today and have electricity all day long, we'd be poor. Like, uh, just, you wouldn't have an option. You're, there's only so much you can do with your manual labor in an environment where there's no modern economy uh, to, to you know, get beyond subsistence. So this isn't rocket science, but it is, it is difficult politics. And I do have that particular, I, that's a conversation I've had probably 25 times with leaders on multiple continents. So it's a consistent dialogue. Hi. <clears throat> My name is Atik. I'm a civil servant from uh, India, currently a Chevening fellow, uh, fellow here. Uh, our experience with uh, renewable energy is that when uh, utilities uh, buy energy through a bid, uh, the price is quite low. In fact, in we, our experience is we are buying uh, solar power at 3 rupees a unit, which is 2.16 cents a unit. So then you can buy and then supply. The whole issue is one of governance. There is a political and a policy issue where there there is willingness to pay from consumers, but there is inability or unwillingness to charge. So therefore, we are not able to <coughs> provide the kind of uh, power, even though it's available in the market to buy, to buy. So don't you think the issue, the solution here would be to address the governance and political issue rather than going in for decentralized uh, grids, which are good, but which are, tend to be costly, and perhaps upscaling would be difficult. Yeah, I appreciate that point of view because it is a logical conclusion, right? You'd say, okay, what's the, what's the thing we should do? That's clearly the thing we should do. Uh, and so let's just get it done. And frankly, that's been going on in this field and many other fields for decades. And, is, and to me, the only way you're going to get uh, utilities, energy ministries, regulators, and governments to get to a place where there's A, better pricing, B, less subsidy for fossil fuels, and C, more reliable service access for people that are not connected, is to create competitive pressure. Go out there, start connecting them. Let our entrepreneurs in Bihar show the way. Then all of a sudden, the local government says, oh, we want, we want in on that. 
and we want to be a part of this or we want to compete with it. <laughs> you know, it's one or the other. And, uh, and, and then they get more interested in serving communities that frankly they have not been that interested in actually serving. So the, my, my thing is this, is this requires urgency. We should do whatever is most effective now. And I think political change comes uh, after people observe others going out and doing it. And, and so I've seen that happen in health, I've seen that happen in agriculture, I've seen that happen in other areas of work, and I think it should happen in this one as well. Hi, my name is Alex, I'm a student of development studies here. Um, you mentioned that you're focused mostly on India and Africa where there is a high uh, capacity to harness solar energy. I was just curious if you're also looking into other types of renewables like hydro and wind to connect communities that don't have that capacity for solar. Yeah, thank you. We, we have been and we've supported uh, in particular different kinds of financing mechanisms to provide capital for projects that are smaller scale hydro, uh, wind, and, and other solutions. Uh, you know, the reality is there's probably for, for sort of big grid-based power that's at large scale, uh, there are other sources of capital, and what we've, as a foundation, we've said our first preference is the access challenge. And so we're, we preference our investments against those projects that are most likely to provide new access to people that don't otherwise have it and have crafted our strategy around that. But I, look, all of the above is necessary. And frankly, I didn't speak about this, but... Uh, for someone in development studies, I would make the case you should consider the idea that for many decades, Western development institutions basically moved away from effectively being able to support uh, power generation, grid extension, transmission and distribution. I think in that void, the most consequential partners to countries have been Chinese institutions. And that's both, in some cases, created progress and in other cases uh, created some real challenges with governance and corruption and quality of products. So uh, it's complicated space out there, but I would uh, one successful outcome of this kind of a gathering would be more people interested in energy poverty as the core driver of ending poverty on a global scale. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Swapnil. I come from India and I'm a Chevening Gurukul fellow here. Uh, I work with an organization uh, known as Infosys and uh, Infosys aims to be, a to be a carbon neutral company by 2020 and we do this by uh, setting up captive renewable uh, plants and focusing on waste uh, energy, stuff like that, right? My question to you is what according to you are two or three things that we need to do and push for more aggressively to ensure that uh, not only organizations like us, but uh, other uh, infrastructure projects uh, tend to go the carbon neutral way and, uh, and not only be energy positive, but also ensure a coherent implementation of the SDGs. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I just will say I have a tremendous respect for Infosys and its founder, uh, who is an important partner of ours, uh, the Nilakanis. But I, I would, you know, the, actually, the thought I would leave you, because you're doing a fellowship here and you might have some space to think creatively, is your company and the communities in which you may have influence and the predictive analytics tools, the data science tools, the uh, geospatial photography 
uh, algorithm development capabilities that Infosys, Wipro, Microsoft, others have is going to be a critical part of solving this problem. And so while I welcome you know, putting solar panels on the roofs of your buildings or data centers, uh, that's fantastic and you keep that up. But I think take the core skill set that Infosys offers its clients and you know, we would love to have you as a partner in this effort and let's together build a household by household predictive uh, mapping that, that defines which households are more likely to be, uh, they're actually called power users, but have that steep demand for power and electricity because they'll be the drivers of a market and together we can create and make visible a new market that will then usher in a lot of capital behind it. So I, I would just, it's a plea to anyone at a big technology company, uh, join this effort and help us build our, it's right now it's called a latent demand map or e-guide, we, we need a sexier name for it, but uh, because it is so important and exciting, but you'd be shocked at how effective these tools already are. And when I sit with leaders, they tell me that three years ago, five years ago, we simply didn't have this capacity. We didn't have the geospatial data, we didn't have the computing power, and the algorithms didn't have the nuanced stability they have today to pinpoint uh, and in an accurate way predict household demand. From my understanding as a chemist, uh, from, from observing how China has actually managed to lift millions out of poverty uh, through urbanization, Traditionally, that's been the model, right? Uh, people moving into cities in search of better opportunities for, for work, for education, to have access to clean water, basically everything. Uh, wouldn't it actually be counterproductive to actually invest in rural areas as opposed to helping more people to be more urbanized, and to just embrace this urbanization trend? Uh, probably so, it works out cheaper. Yeah, I, I, I would actually say the, well, first, uh, well, let me come back to the China point specifically. But I, I'd say in general, we all look at a world that has, that is uh, rapidly urbanizing and recognize that urban environments will define kind of quality of life for a very large percentage of the population. I think it's already over 50% and is well on its way to two thirds. Uh, that said, both, uh, the preponderance of subsistence poverty continues to be in rural communities. And uh, rural populations are not going away. Like you, you don't want, I think, a 90% urbanization rate. And, uh, and so organizing economic activity in rural communities uh, and towns, like these rural communities sometimes have towns of 70,000, 90,000, 200,000 people uh, are is, remains an important challenge for development writ large. Uh, so, so that's on urban-rural. Other thing on urban-rural is these solutions, in my view, are quite relevant to urban energy access. Once you define the challenge as access, as opposed to kind of uh, a, a mapping of where power is and isn't, you see in urban communities, very, very, very populous communities that don't have real access to productive energy and power. So these types of solutions, I think, will have big impacts in urban areas over time as well. Final thing on China, I'd just say that to make these really ubiquitous solutions, uh, one of the big cost challenges is we need better 
cheaper, more durable lithium-ion batteries. <laughs> and I didn't get into the detail here, but like if I could wave a magic wand and say three years from now, what would I want to see? And it is probably Chinese battery manufacturers and chemists who will help define that future. So uh, I just make that point. Hello, hi, um, my name is Beverly, and I'm uh, also a development studies here, development studies student here at the Department of International Development. So I grew up in Kenya, Nairobi, and so, um, you know, I've been subjected to the power cuts most of my uh, childhood. Uh, so one thing I was curious about is, um, certainly now we're seeing a lot of renewable energy suppliers, uh, but Predominantly, it seems like they're coming from um, Western countries. So we have a lot of American small organizations and uh, European organizations uh, working on that front. But I'm wondering about how uh, the Rockefeller Foundation is thinking of keeping this local. So um, how are you finding and approaching uh, local providers? And also, I'm very curious about uh, your experience working with the Kenya, if you're working uh, in partnership with the KPLC, which is yeah. the Kenya Power and Lighting Company. Yeah. And so what are the opportunities or challenges in working or not working with them? Thank you. Uh, good, well, thank you. And thank you for your uh, commitment to this field. Uh, I'll say on the first, uh, at Rockefeller, we work through partners that are very local and very committed to the identification of local entrepreneurial partners. In Kenya, for example, we work with Cross Boundary uh, and other parts of Southern Africa, we work with Factor E. Uh, in India, similarly, most of our partners are local businesses. And that's really important for lots of reasons that I think you were uh, at least making reference to. I'd say on KPLC, KPLC is the major utility in Kenya. Uh, they've been a really important partner in our data projects because they're sharing uh, data act and, and allowing us to do some of the things I mentioned as possible uh, with respect to integrating actual utility data with geospatial data and then doing analytics on all of that. Uh, and that frontier is you know, really tremendously important and wouldn't take place without the participation of firms like KPLC. Uh, so we're grateful for that. And, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat realistic. I mean, these most utilities do want to understand how they can be uh, successful in a future that involves integrating rural off-grid or even urban off-grid solutions with the grid. And so we partner with them on that through an exercise we call Utility 2.0. My only point is, uh, you know, you don't, look, Africa has, I think, one profitable utility. It's in Uganda. Uh, I remember 10 years ago hearing the same exact thing. I don't want to be here 10 years from now just saying, let's go fix utilities and make them well-managed and profitable. Uh, arguably, that didn't happen regularly in the United States for a long time. So I, I would just, I, I just think you, you create change in industries by competitive pressure. And, uh, and so our commitment to this strategy is at least inspired in part by that. I'm afraid we're going to have to finish there, but I would like to thank the audience for uh, some really splendid questions. And I do apologize to the people I didn't get to. Um, Raj, the, the Rockefeller Foundation has been a force for good for over 100 years, and it's extraordinary 
what it has achieved. And it's just fabulous to see it really at the forefront of thinking about reducing poverty. And thank you for just a, a really splendid, thoughtful talk. And I hope we rose to at least some of your challenges. Please join me in thanking Raj.